I think we all have extended family members that are a little bit different, right? Anybody? And don't raise your hand if you're sitting next to them. Anybody? We all have some of those, don't we? You know what I mean? Like they need a little bit of explanation before you introduce them to strangers. Like if you're dating, you've got a boyfriend, girlfriend, before you bring them over to the family gathering, you pull them aside and you go, here's what you need to know about this cousin. Like, stay away from that uncle. You know what I mean? Like, you've got those relatives in your life, don't you, that need just a little bit of a disclaimer. Or maybe some of you have relatives um, that there's just some things in the past that when you get together as a family, you just don't talk about, right? I mean, they're good people, but there's some stuff there that it just gets really awkward around the dinner table if you bring certain things up. And in the first chapter of Matthew, at the very beginning of the Christmas story, we find out that actually Jesus has some of those kinds of relatives in his family tree as well. We're going to look at one of them today. Maybe you have someone in your life like this, a loved one, a relative, um, someone that you loved and you respected, and then in a moment or a season... They disappointed you so profoundly that it's actually kind of hard to be around them during the holidays. You actually have a hard time sort of pretending everything's okay, right? I think if you've lived for any length of time, you've experienced uh, one of three different things, or most likely two or three of three different things. One of those is someone you respected who let you down. I don't, I don't know, we have this um, idea, maybe it was you know, a spiritual leader, maybe it was a, uh, a teacher or somebody in your life that you respected or a relative, someone you had a lot of respect for, and then they did something that really, really let you down. We have this kind of idea that famous people are different or better. I don't know, Christians do this, right? Somebody's a funny comedian, and so we think somehow they're more mature and better. Uh, they're not, right? They just, they're more visible. And, and, and so, sometimes you have these people that you just respect them and they profoundly let you down. Some of you have experienced that. I experienced that somewhat several years ago with a leader, great leader, famous na- nationwide leader. Um, had a lot of respect for him. Learned a ton from this guy. Never met him personally. Learned a ton. And then this stuff comes out, right? And he sort of goes into the background in disgrace. And it's kind of hard when that happens, isn't it? Because on the one side, like, you, you get, like, people are people, right? And, and they have issues. And, and then at the same time, you, uh, you understand, like, this person actually really positively and profoundly impacted my life. They had a lot of really good things to say and a lot of really good, uh, I mean, they really impacted me. And so what we usually do in those kind of circumstances with people like that is we either demonize them, right? That somehow now we discount everything that they've ever done and they're just a bad, lousy person. Or because it's hard to kind of hold these two things, we, we, uh, we minimize whatever they did because we have so much, still so much respect, right? So that's kind of a natural response. So you probably experienced someone you respected who let you down. And then probably, well, I know all of us in the room have probably experienced this one. You let yourself down. You had an idea in your head. You had a set of standards for your life, and lo and behold, you did not even keep your own standards for your life. 
not even talking about God's standards or other people's or your parents' standards. Really, you have a set of standards for your life that you expected yourself to live by, and you didn't live up to them. You let yourself down. You had a high expectation of yourself. You blew it. And in the process of letting yourself down, um, you let others down. You let God down as well. You told God, God, if you will, I'll never. And then you woke up and you went, I guess I did. It's a common experience to humanity, isn't it? You let yourself down. And then I, I think definitely if you live long enough at some season in your life, you've experienced this, that you feel like God let you down. That you feel like God let you down. Now, by letting you down, sometimes that means you feel like God's just kind of indifferent to you or you were really close, like, like God was really active and involved in your life in one season and now he's just distant or you don't feel like he's really active or not really involved. Um, people in, in the history of the church have called this the dark night of the soul where you're just like, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And sometimes... Um, Sometimes, usually when you feel like God let you down, it's because life hasn't gone the way you hoped. Like circumstances haven't gone the way you planned. And sometimes you know the exact reason why, because it comes to the one before, you let yourself down and others, right? Other times, and many times, you don't have any clue why you're in the circumstances you're in. In fact, as you look at your life, you'd honestly say, God, I really feel like I was pressing in, I was following you, I was doing my best to obey, not perfect, but... There's nothing major in my life I can look back on and point to and go, this is why I'm here. And that's a confusing and difficult place to be in often when you don't have a clue about the circumstances and yet you feel like somehow in that moment, God's let you down, right? And over the past few weeks, we've been in a series looking at some of the characters listed in the very beginning of a Matthew's account of the Christmas story, the very first chapter of the New Testament. And we've been looking at how unexpected it was that Matthew highlights some of these characters. And today we're going to look at one that really ties into these things that we've been talking about for the last few minutes. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Matthew chapter 1. We'll just be in there for a moment. And this is the last week for a while. I'm going to read a genealogy to you. So here you go. This is the very beginning of the Christmas story. Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, keep that little thing in mind, the son of David. That'll be important here in a little while when it comes to Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. As we've been saying all along, this is really odd that Matthew would, would do this. In fact, there's several other ladies' names in this genealogy, which at this point in history, when you were writing a genealogy, you just didn't do that. It's highly unusual. But Matthew not only puts in some of um, some ladies' names, um, some of the mother's names in the genealogy of Jesus, he actually goes on to highlight some that you would never expect, right? And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this story of Judah and Tamar, this creepy, weird, um, kind of R-rated story. Not very Christmassy story, right? You're like, Christmas season, what are we reading these chapters for? 
But Matthew thinks it's important that we remember this. So Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram. I like that name. I still do. I think some of you should name your kids that, and then don't blame it on me. Uh, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Another one. We, we, we looked at her story last week. And the funny thing is, you know, thousands of years later, you still know the tagline in the title that is connected with Rahab's name. Let's see if you remember it from last week. Rahab the? Yes. How strange that Matthew would put this name and highlight this name in the genealogy of Jesus instead of the names like, you know, Sarah, Rebecca, like the famous ones, right? Rachel, the ones everybody wants to remember. Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and there's our favorite chick flick book of the Bible, Ruth. It's a great story, but interestingly enough, um, there's some stuff going on behind the scenes in that story too, which makes it a little strange. Well, Ruth isn't, she's from Moab, and they despised people from Moab. You people from Moab, we have some of you in here. Different Moab. You're fine, you Utahns. So Ruth, uh, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, if you're a good Jewish person reading this genealogy, you're like, whew, well, that was a little weird getting started. Some of those people that, that he puts in the story, at least now we're to the person we need to get to. Why? Because Messiah is known and it was going to be of the lineage, the son of David or the ancestor of David. So if Matthew is introducing us to the Messiah, trying to make the case that he's the Holy One of God, so odd he'd throw these other strange, creepy, weird stories in there and these other names, like what a left, it's just out of left field, right? Finally, we're getting to where we need to be. David. David. Everybody loves David. Remember David and Goliath? Anybody remember that story? The dragon slayer. David, the, the kingdom builder. David, the rock star. He is. I mean, he wrote like all the songs that everybody was singing back then. He's like the, the much more inspired version of Chris Tomlin, right? Because actually his, his songs are scripture. He's a rock star, isn't he? David. Finally, we get to the one. But then he goes, he takes a left turn again. Check this out. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Wink, wink. And if you're a good Jewish person reading this in the first century, you're like, ooh, why did you have to put that in there? I mean, we want to think about the good things. David's one of our heroes. David, I mean, he's this hero king. He's the greatest king in Israel's history. I mean, why did you have to put that in there? I mean, that's the stuff you don't talk about at the family dinner table. That's part of the history that you just sort of shove into the past and pretend it's not there. Why? Because you probably know 
the name of Uriah's wife here even 3,000 years later, don't you? Let's see if anybody knows the name of Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And you probably know a little bit of something about David and Bathsheba's story, don't you? It's interesting because Matthew specifically takes this major left turn to point out David's greatest failure. In fact, what has become one of the most um, well-known sins in the course of human history. Why would Matthew do that? Why does he go out of his way to point out David's failure? Why, Why would he draw our attention to this as he's trying to make the case that Messiah is the Holy One of God. Why would he do that? I think what we're going to discover is because Matthew knows that David's story is actually at the heart of the story he's getting ready to tell. It's actually the point of the gospel story that's about ready to unfold. And so, I want to take a minute and look at David's story. Because it starts out about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Uh, The first king of Israel is named Saul. And Saul was taller than everybody else. He just looked like a king. And he was the first king of Israel. Um, But unfortunately, his character was very, very deficient. He was not obedient to God, and he did a real lousy job as a king. And so God has decided to remove Saul and his family line from the kingship and anoint someone who will be a person who's after God's own heart. And so God sends the prophet Samuel to a little town called Bethlehem that we like to think about this time of year, right? And he tells them, go to the house of Jesse, And you're going to anoint a new king from one of Jesse's sons. And so Samuel shows up in town. And when the prophet shows up in town, you're always a little bit nervous because you never know. It's not always good news, right? It's usually a rebuke. And so as he shows up and knocks on Jesse's door, I'm sure Jesse's like, um, something wrong? Why are you here? And he's like, no, I've actually got great news for you. Go get your sons. Line them up. And so Jesse gets his, his seven of his eight sons and lines them up um, in front of Samuel. And Samuel looks at them, and they're good-looking boys. They just look like the kind of stock that kings would come from. In fact, he looks at the first one, and he's like, wow, the oldest, he just looks like a king. I'm sure he's the one. And God whispers into Samuel's ear, hey, uh, humans look at the outside, I look at the heart. He's not your guy. Okay. Well, I'm sure that the second born, man, the second born has so much energy and spunk. That second born, I bet he's the king. And God says, no, he's, he's not either. Okay, um, the third born, look at this guy. And the cool thing about this guy is he's watched all the mistakes his older two brothers have made. And he's learned not to make them. He's got a special wisdom. Any third borns you learned from, yeah, you learned from the mistakes your older siblings made, right? So he's like the third born. And God goes, nope, sorry. All the way down the line, all seven of them. Samuel gets to the end, and he's kind of scratching his head. He's like, I know I heard from God. I'm the prophet Samuel. Um, Jesse, do you get any more sons? 
And Jesse's like, oh, yeah, well, there's this one guy. He's the shepherd. He's the shepherd. But you really want to meet him? Samuel goes, go call him right away. And so they run out to the field because he's hanging out. He's a shepherd. He's with the sheep, right? And they go, David, David, the prophet wants to see you. Hurry up. Come on in. David runs in, sweaty, out of breath, runs through the door. He's this young kid, maybe young teenager, runs through the door, jumps in line with his brothers. It's like, what? He's smelly because he's been with the sheep. Ew. And God whispers in Samuel, that's, that's the one. I mean, David, it says he's ruddy and handsome, which means, ladies, in your Christmas Hallmark chick flicks, um, he's not like the stockbroker with the slicked back hair and, and, and the suit, right? This is the, the ranch hand that comes on in to the story, and he's a little rough around the edges, and he's, and he's got some scruff, but you just know he's the one, right? And they fall in love, and then he turns out to be like, the Prince of Liechtenstein or something. Because every girl wants to marry a prince, right? That's, that's David, right? But more importantly, God knows his heart. And his heart is after God. And so the prophet Samuel anoints him with oil, which is pouring oil over his head, a symbol of like royalty and authority and commission of, of God. He anoints him. And then 20 years go by in David's life with some incredible highs and some incredible lows. Anybody do highs and lows in your family sometimes? We haven't done them much lately, but uh, it's because it's 2020, uh, I guess. I mean, you've all heard of David and Goliath, right? Talk about high. Highs and lows today. Well, slingshot, Goliath, giant, that was kind of a high. Not going to lie. But that was, a, that was like a major high, and it propelled David into just the spotlight, right? And then he becomes this great warrior that all the kingdom, all the ladies, they're singing songs about him, right? I think he's feeling pretty good then, right? And then before you know it, King Saul, um, who's actually got a demon oppressing him, King Saul, he's trying to kill David. And David, for, for years of his life, is fleeing from King Saul. And yet, even when he's, he's got a heart after God, he does, he's obedient to God. And even when he has the opportunity to, to take King Saul's life, and David says, no, 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 I can't do this. David's just a stellar guy, right? Eventually, 20 years go by. David becomes king of Israel. Saul is killed in a battle. And David is the new king, and he is blessed. He is a great leader, a great warrior, a great king. And he gets Pretty wealthy, too. He builds himself a big old palace. And after that, he's like, God, I feel bad. I got this great palace, and you're still living in that tabernacle tent, you know, from way back in the Exodus. I want to build you an incredible temple. And he, and he dreams of building God this incredible temple. And so God, at this point, sends the prophet. Prophet Nathan comes to David and says, hey, um, it's awesome that you want to build God a temple, but God said, I never really asked for that, but that's great. But you're, you're, a, you're a man of bloodshed, so you're not going to be able to build the temple. But your ancestor, your child, will. And then he makes David an incredible, incredible promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
verse 8. Here's, here's the word of God, the promise of God to David. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I've been with you, David. You know that. You know my presence has been with you. You realize he wrote most of the Psalms during this time um, that he had been fleeing from Saul, and yet there is this inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's, he knows what it's like to, to know the presence of God with him, even in dark places. And he says, you know I've been with you. And David's like, I know. There's no way my story could have turned out this way unless you had been with me. Your presence had gone with me. Then God says this, the second half of verse 9. He says, now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Let me just ask, and we'll do a show of hands here. How many, before you walked through the doors today, had heard the name of David? Wow. I guess that came true. God kept that promise. Still to this day, you know the name David, and he's associated with the names of the greatest men who ever lived. Jump down to verse 11. The Lord continues this promise to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house. Think about a generational name. The Lord will establish a house, a legacy, a generational name for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Not you, David. Not you. Your son will build the house, and it will be amazing. In fact, after it's built, it's one of the, the seven wonders of the world, Solomon's temple. And then he goes on, he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Your house and your kingdom, David, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Isn't that amazing? This is a promise that God makes to David. An unconditional promise, if you, did, if you notice that. This wasn't like, hey, David, I need you to do these five things. If you do them well, here's what's going to happen. God just says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull this off. This is my plan. Here's what I'm going to do. And over time, the Jews understood this to mean that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. That's why I said, you know, in the very start of the genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of who? David. This is very important. The Messiah would come, and it would be the Messiah who would raise up a kingdom, and it would be a kingdom that never, ever ends. It's a promise God makes. It's a promise he made to him, and it's an amazing, wonderful promise. But here's the problem. And here's what Matthew just wanted to point out to us right away. Because a couple chapters later after this, 
got a couple of cool epic battles. And then a couple chapters later after this, David gives God a really good reason to retract this promise, right? A really good reason. And four chapters later, uh, David decides to stay home from war. He's like, I'm rich, I'm powerful, I'm the warrior. Yeah, I got my mighty men. He had his mighty men, which is kind of like, you know, I don't know, his posse. They just rolled with him, you know. But these guys were incredible warriors. He's like, I'm going to let my mighty men go out and do their thing. I'm going to just kick back a little bit. I deserve a couple. I just want to chill for a little. I think I've earned it, right? I'm successful. So, so it says when kings go off to war, David said, I think I'll stay home this time around. And let me just say, this is a good note. Success is, is much more dangerous to our character than hardship. Most people struggle more when they succeed. You want to know why it seems like so many successful, um, wealthy people end up failing? It's because success is actually much more difficult and much more challenging to our character than hardship. And David says, I'm rich, I'm successful. I, I deserve to kick back for a while. And he goes up on his roof and he's hanging out and looking around, surveying his kingdom. And he looks over on a roof over here and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he calls his servants over and goes, hey, um, who's that over there? Just curious. And they go, well, that's, um, that's the wife of Uriah, your general. And he goes, oh, okay. I don't know if you thought about it for a while, how the whole thing goes down, but one thing leads to another pretty soon. He says, ah, why don't you just call her? I just want to kind of talk to her for, for a minute. Go, can you just call her, tell her to come on over to the palace? And she does. And they do a lot more than talk. And a couple weeks later, she sends him a message. I'm pregnant. And now David has a huge mess on his hands. And David does what so many who are in a similar situation have tried to do over the course of history. He tries to figure out a way to cover it up, sweep it under the rug, make it go away. So he comes up with a clever plan. He calls Uriah in from battle. Hey, Uriah, you know, sends him a message. I need you to come back for a consult. And so Uriah comes back, and David has this meal, and is asking him all these pointed questions about the battle. And then he's like, Uriah, good job. You're doing such a great job out there. I want you, I want you to go home and just, you know, enjoy some R&R at home. He thinks, been going on the battlefield a long time. I know how we can cover this up. Timing. They didn't have paternity tests in those days. Well, I'll never figure the timing out. Close enough. And so the next morning comes and David's servants come up and say, um, didn't you tell Uriah to go home? He slept out at the gate all night, right in front of the palace. David's like, what? So he calls him in. He's like, Uriah, what's going on here? I mean, don't, don't you want to go see your wife? And Uriah said, oh, my honor, my men are fighting and giving their lives on the front lines. There's no way my honor could allow me to go home and relax and get some R&R &R right now. 
And so David thinks, well, shoot, I need to come up with a new plan. So he goes, well, why don't you come over for dinner tonight? And that night, he gets Uriah good and drunk. He figures this will work. He tells him again, hey, go on home. Go see your wife. You deserve a little time off. Next morning, Uriah's at the gate. And David realizes his problem isn't going away. And so then he does something that is just so unthinkable to us. But it's what desperate people do when they get in desperate situations. They profoundly let others and themselves and God down in ways that they never would have imagined or never thought they could have gotten to. And so he, he writes a note to the commander, Joab, and says, I want you to put Uriah at the very center of the front line. And then, when the battle's heated, I want you to pull back. He seals this. He sends it with Uriah. His own death sentence, he makes Uriah carry it back. And Uriah is such a valiant fighter that he fights all the way up to the walls of this city that they're fighting against. And then finally, he's struck by an arrow and killed. And David thinks... Disaster averted. Got away with it. Not the way I wanted it to go, but a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. And he thinks his secret is safe. But it wasn't, was it? Because God was watching. And God knew. And the scripture says this in 2 Samuel 11, verse 27. It says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It was evil. And so one morning, Nathan the prophet shows up again at David's house. And he tells him, David, I got this crazy situation. There's this guy. And he had... He's a poor guy. He only had one sheep. And this other rich guy comes in and steals that sheep and kills that sheep. What should we do to the guy? And David stands up and he's so angry and so mad as he thinks about what that, that rich guy did to the poor guy with the one sheep. And he goes, he should die. And Nathan points his prophet finger at him. And goes, David, you are that man. And David realizes his sin is known. And Nathan says, you're going to pay dearly for it. There's going to be a discipline. Um, David repents. Um, Psalm 51 is a beautiful example of that. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He says, against you alone, Lord, have I sinned. This is, this is against you. He truly repents. He, he turns from that. He confesses it. And the prophet says, you're forgiven. But there's still going to be great consequences. And see, this is one of the truths of life, is that decisions have consequences. Sin has consequences. And sometimes, sometimes those consequences are grave. Sometimes they're not. But in, Dave's, in David's um, example, in David's life, Man, he had some grave consequences that rolled out. Some of that's God's discipline. Some of, that, some of God's discipline is just the fact that he allows the consequences 
of, of decisions to play out. And after David, you know, the story of this gets out everywhere. He can't hide it. People know about it. His own sons learn about it. They know what their dad's done. So before too long in David's life, his family just blows up and is a mess. His oldest son rapes his half-sister. And then his favorite son, because he's so angry at the oldest son, murders his oldest son. And then his favorite son deposes him and claims the right to the throne. And while he is in exile out of the land, takes David's concubines, sets up a tent on the roof. And what David did in private, he did in the view of all the people, shames him. And the generational stuff just keeps rolling out after this. To the point that David just feels so much like God was done with him. Like he blew it. God had abandoned him. In fact, at one point, David, as he's going into exile from the city, this guy comes out from Saul's family line and just starts cursing at him. And one of the mighty men is like, dude, you want me? You can't talk like that to the king. David, you want me just to chop his head off? And David's like, no, God's cursed me. Let this dude curse me too. He felt like God had truly abandoned him. He still had hope. Maybe God will restore me. You know, here's the thing, though. Even though the consequences in his life um, were very, very painful, they did not negate God's promise. God's promise was eternal. And David's sinful and inconsistent behavior did not override the promise of God to him. In fact, during the darkest times of Israel's history, when Israel was at a point where they were getting ready to be hauled off into exile, God, through his prophets, again, reaffirms the promise to David through the prophet Jeremiah, a righteous branch will spring up out of David. In other words, the Messiah is still coming from the line of David. I have not abandoned my promise to the house of David. There's a kingdom coming, right? He promises a new covenant, a time when, when sins would be remembered no more and the law of God would be written on the hearts of his people. A new covenant. He promises that the Messiah would come. That actually, as human kings over and over and over let them down, that God would come and step in and move himself in our history. That God will be with us. And so at the very beginning of the account of the first Christmas, Matthew, as he's writing this, inspired by God, has to pause and remind his audience right here, right at the beginning of David's biggest failure. And as odd as that seems, I think there's a real strong reason. I think the reason he does that is because he was about ready to tell the story of another unconditional promise that God would make of a promise God would make, not between just David and David's household and God, but between mankind and God. The promise of a, of a new covenant, and it would be a promise sealed in his very own blood. 
And so Matthew finishes writing his genealogy. And he goes on and on and on. And I thought I'd spare you reading the rest of the chapter, unless you want me to, the rest of the genealogy. No, we'll skip that. We'll skip ahead a few verses to verse 18. He finishes writing all these names, a thousand years of names, and finally he comes to a carpenter named Joseph from a town named what? Bethlehem, the city of David, the town of David. And Joseph, Joseph was caught up in his own unexpected dramatic story, wasn't he? A story that he never expected, he never hoped for. He's, he's got all this turmoil. Matthew 1.18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And that's information that Matthew knows. Joseph didn't know that information at the time, did he? Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Imagine the drama. Imagine the pain Joseph's feeling. The anger, the betrayal, the grief. What was supposed to be the happiest day in his life. And now he thinks, I, I, I still love her. I don't want to hurt her. But I can't go through with this. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the very point that Matthew puts all these stories and all these names and reminds us of all these uncomfortable things that we would just assume or, or prefer to sweep under the rug and not really bring up around the Christmas dinner, you know, the stuff in the family history nobody really wants to talk about. And Matthew's like, oh, no, no, I want to point it out right at the front. Why? Because a Savior was coming who would repair the brokenness that all humanity suffers who can deal with the deepest root problem, deeper than the other problems of you know, Rome and all this. That they, and, and the problem is that there's a separation from God, that the peace with God is broken, that sin separates us from God. And Matthew says a Savior is coming who will save his people, even people like David, who blew it worse than anybody can imagine save his people from their sins. People like you and me who have a heart for God but maybe have some brokenness inside. Maybe some dysfunction. Maybe you've been let down and you've become distrustful of God. Maybe you let yourself down and others down and you think God must be done with me. Matthew says there's a Savior coming to save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us.
God with us. See, this message was announced by the angels as good news, gospel, good news. The four accounts of Jesus' life are called gospels, good news, that causes great joy that God is with us, that God is for us, that he's on your side, that he cares about you enough that he came in the person of Jesus. That's what this season is about. And the good news that Matthew will highlight throughout this whole account of Jesus' life is this, that you've been invited to step into a relationship with God that is governed by a promise. It's governed by a promise. And it's characterized by His faithfulness. And it's faithfulness and a promise that is expressed to you in forgiveness and mercy and grace. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news is that God kept his promise and came to this earth to be with us and for us, just like God kept his promise to David. And when Jesus came, he said, guess what? The kingdom of God is upon you. I have come to launch and initiate a kingdom that will never end. And if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are part of that. You are part of that. And one day, we will experience the fullness of that when Jesus returns. We will experience eternal life if you placed your faith and trust in him. And we celebrate that God is a God who makes promises and keeps promises. If you forget everything else I said today, remember this. God keeps his promise. God keeps his promises. And that's really good news for those of us who have been let down by someone we respect, isn't it? It's the good news that, that God is a God who keeps his promises. He sees your disappointment, your lack of, of trust, and says, hey, don't focus on other flawed human beings. I'm a God who won't let you down. You don't, won't always understand the way I'm active in your life and the circumstances that happen. But you can know that you will always find mercy and grace from me. That I care about you. That I love you. Don't let your flawed human relationships cause you to push away from God. He's a good father. And he loves you. It's also good news for those of us who have let ourselves and others down and failed to keep even our own standards. And that's at the heart of the gospel. There's a few verses in Romans that are the heart of the gospel or the good news when it comes to finding eternal life in Jesus. And you know, we need to be reminded the gospel is the greatest true story ever told. And sometimes we grow numb to it because we grew up in church. We've heard it so many times. And as I read these verses, if that's you in the room, I just want to encourage you to ask God like, to rekindle the joy of salvation in your heart. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've let yourself down and God down and others down. So are the rest of us. All have sinned. There's no one who stands on a right platform before God on their own. The good news is, is this, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. I think as Paul's writing this, he's thinking of the fact that he was literally, while he was sinning at that moment, Jesus was dying for him. He says this, the wages of sin is death. See, this is why after you get saved and have the good news of the promise of salvation, you don't just go and do everything you want. You don't live a sinful life. Why? Because sin brings death into your life, into your relationships. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift, you realize the reason we give gifts at Christmas time is because he gave the first gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 10.9 says, if, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Guys, that's a promise. That's a promise. We have the promise of ongoing forgiveness. And some of you need to hear this in the room. Paul says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's that little voice whispering in your ear because of that thing you did back there, because of the way you let yourself down and you let others down, you are not worthy before God. That's the voice of the enemy speaking. The voice of truth is there's no condemnation. That's the past. Turn away from that and run towards Jesus. We have ongoing forgiveness. If we confess our sins... 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. We have peace. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As you place your faith and trust in Him, it says we're good. We're good. And for those of you who feel like God has let them down, God promises, hey, we don't always understand life circumstances or why certain things are allowed in our life, but you know what we're promised? We're promised in Scripture mercy and grace in our time of need. That you come to God and He will always give you mercy and grace in your time of need. He, he never promises life is going to be easy all the time. But he promises to be there for you, that he will give you grace to get through what you're going through. He promises that he is with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. That he will actually dwell in you through his Holy Spirit. He promises that nothing can separate us from his love. This is the story of Christmas. This is why Jesus came. This is what we're celebrating. Paul says this in Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's amazing news. And so Matthew begins his account of Christmas by pointing out the faithfulness of God who keeps his promises even to those who have not been faithful. 
And so I want to invite you to stand. Before I close, I, I just want to give an opportunity for somebody in the room, maybe, or, or somebody joining us online here today. I feel like with that clear of a, a proclamation of the gospel, we better give you an opportunity to respond. And so if that's you in the room and you want to respond by placing your faith and trust in Jesus, you can pray a prayer somewhat like this after me. Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died and rose again. I know I'm a sinner and I cannot make it to God on my own. And so I turn from my sin. I put my faith and trust in you. I ask for your forgiveness. Would you welcome me? Would you give me life? Would you bring me into your family? And Lord, for all my other friends, I just pray that, um, that their heart would be just reignited today and as we celebrate Christmas this week with the wonder of the gospel, with the joy of the peace we can experience with you. And Lord, for that person that's just struggling in disappointment and pain, that they would just feel a profound sense, an unexpected sense of your grace this week. They would know you're with them. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.